Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This week's teaching is called A Disinterested Authenticity and is part four in our series on Crossings Values called Compass Calibration. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on August 27, 2023. Thanks for listening. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, so when I lived in Dayton, Ohio, uh, a few years ago, uh, several friends and I, we would go to this pub uh, every week for this trivia tournament that this pub held. Um, for you Arrested Development fans, our team name was There's Always Money in the Banana Stand. Um, but uh, it was a good time, and we usually placed like somewhere in the top three, which meant we got gift cards, which meant that we could eat uh, or do other things like that more. Um, and so this one time... Uh, we all met up at the pub, uh, ordered our food, started eating. And after I finished my food, my friend Parker, who was sitting across from me, dramatically hit his phone and started laughing. And when he stopped laughing, he said, four minutes and 36 seconds. And I was really confused. And so I said, what are you talking about? He said, I've always noticed how fast you eat. So I wanted to time you. You ate your sandwich and all of your fries in four minutes and 36 seconds. And that's when I realized I had a problem. It's a problem that I've actually always had, though. uh, And the problem has evolved and changed over the years. Uh, When I was in high school and actually had a metabolism, I ate way too much. Um, Brandon Perry and I would go to McDonald's and uh, eat two or three Big Macs at one time and two apple pies and a large fry and a sweet tea. And that was like a normal day at McDonald's for me. Um, I don't do that anymore. Uh, But I do have this problem of eating too fast. And when I'm with people I've never been around before, people I've never actually eaten a meal with, I have to like coach myself and tell myself, okay, slow down, put the fork down. You don't need to eat. You know, can talk for a little bit. Um, I have to pace myself. But the real problem for me is that I just love food. Like, I love food. Um, Pretty much all food. There's not much that I've had that I didn't like, and I'm willing to try just about anything. Um, I can still put large quantities of food away, but my real problem is that I just want to try everything out there. Uh, I want to have authentic food, too. I don't want imitation. I don't want something out of the freezer. I want something really, truly, genuinely authentic. Well, at least I think I do. Uh, uh, Some of my favorite food experiences have come overseas, um, experiences that have changed my palate, cravings, things that I would never have tried before, but now want, find myself wanting at certain times of the year. Uh, One of the major changes in my palate happened whenever I went to Israel for a summer. Um, And in in Israel, everything is just fresh. I mean, the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the hummus, the bread, the oils, everything is just so fresh and good. And in Jerusalem, there's a a place called the Machne Yehuda Market. And it's an amazing experience. It's an open air market. There's colors that just pop all over the place of spices and fruits and vegetables. Uh, Everybody's yelling. It's awesome. They're hustling. They're trying to get more for less. It's 
is absolutely an amazing experience, and I loved it. And I loved eating the fresh produce, taking it back to the apartment, cooking it, making this stuff. It was, it was something that I can't recreate here. I can't make it work again. As great as our farmer's market is out here, it's just not the same. Um, I've had authentic Jamaican jerk chicken in Jamaica. I've had authentic fish curry in India. That one didn't go so well. <laughs> but what I really, really love is this quest to try new authentic foods because there's something about a connection with a place, uh, with the locality, with its local flavors that's just special. And it's a hint towards this longing that I think a lot of us have to experience things, whether it's food or life, authentically. Um, we, we all want something real. We want something that's honest, something that doesn't feel mass-produced or one-size-fits-all, right? We, we want to have something that's authentic. Um, so for the last three weeks, we have been talking about our values at Crossings. Um, we've covered story, we've covered restoration, we've covered wholeness. And the reason that we think it's important to revisit these values for us as a community is that from time to time, we, we forget what these things are. Uh, we have this drift towards just whatever is easy, whatever feels good. And so we want to make sure that we're heading in the right direction. Um, we don't think that there's a map out there that tells us where we can go as individuals or as a faith community. Uh, there's not just this uh, well-charted out, follow these steps and everything works out okay. Um, we, we know where the general direction that we think we need to be heading is. This direction of shalom, this Hebrew word that we use that means peace and well-being and wholeness. We know that we want this for ourselves individually. We know we want this for each other as a community. Um, and so we know that direction, we need compasses that point us that direction. Um, so today we're going to be looking at this value, this compass of authenticity. And I have to be honest with you up front uh, that I really struggle with this value. Um, uh, not that I struggle with being authentic, I have a hard time turning that off sometimes. Uh, the problem with uh, authenticity that I have is that sometimes, I think, in our culture, we overvalue or overstate or abuse this idea of authenticity. Um, so take authenticity with food, right, since we're on the subject. Knoxville doesn't have a great Indian restaurant, in my opinion, okay? You may, if you have a suggestion, please hit me up because I've tried and I can't find something that satisfies the cravings for me. Um, but I would love for there to be an authentic Indian restaurant in Knoxville. But I also know that most of the food that I think of as authentic Indian food still isn't really authentic. It's just something that's been catered to my palate because I've had authentic Indian food and it was not a great experience. Um, I, I, I could have, and I've tried to recreate the hummus that I had in Israel uh, to, to put it on a sandwich with cucumber and tomato and oil and eat it on a pita, it's really good. But whenever I tried to do that using the stuff from Kroger, it just wasn't the same. Um, that, that sandwich doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, the same could be said of pizza. Big pizza fan. There's authentic Neapolitan pizza that you can get in Naples, Italy, and there's nothing like it when you're there. But there are these places across the world 
that have to pass a certain test if they want to sell genuine, authentic Neapolitan pizza. They have to be certified. Uh, Even though they're not from Naples, they have to import stuff from Naples in order to have it. So even though the pizza is supposed to be fresh, it takes sometimes seven days to get stuff. And so it starts to get really complicated when we say we want something authentic, but there are all these rules that go into making it authentic. There are all these barriers towards authenticity. There's something about chasing authenticity in and of itself, whether it's in faith or in pizza, that just doesn't work if we're using that as the goal itself. And so, um, anybody ever watch the show Ugly Delicious? Uh, There's like a Netflix show. Nobody? All right. Now you have something you can do. Uh, Add it to your list because it's basically a, a group of chefs who go around looking for really authentic food experiences, but not in the ways that you would think of those things. So they they interview people, different chefs, different restaurants, looking at these different kinds of cuisine. And the first episode that they did was authenticity in pizza. And this is what they said. In terms of storytelling is important to me, but authenticity in food is not a thing. It's like whoever gave you that authentic food experience probably has never thought about themselves as authentic. There's a reductive quality to saying that something's authentic. The starting point was to do something authentic by not trying to be authentic. I think that's a big flaw in the world of pizza particularly. It is the most Italian thing, but if you only look at how it's used to be done or how it's supposed to be done, you don't allow yourself to move it forward. I view authenticity like a totalitarian state. It's something that I think has been overvalued, but reality is it hasn't been scrutinized enough. If you really boil it down to why food in Italy is gonna be so good, it's because you're there. The terroir makes a big difference. There's microorganisms, there's the people there, there's the smells, it's, it's what makes it. It's not that I hate authenticity, I hate that people want this singular thing that is authentic. There are people that are making Italian food that are more Italian in its idea and thesis than anyone in Italy's making because they're not using anything that's imported. They're using everything that's around them. There there is a reductive quality about saying that something is authentic and the starting point for most things that are really authentic Um, are by people who are trying to do something authentic without trying to be authentic. (laughs) Uh, So authenticity for us is this value. It's a weird value to have, uh, so long as it doesn't become something that we try to be, right? It's like trying to be cool. It just doesn't work. I've tried. (laughs) Authenticity is a value for us, uh, and it's a value that we try to recognize, uh, not strive for, when we see it. Um, It's not something that we make rules about, um, about what is or isn't authentic. It's something that we just see and we we acknowledge. Um, Here's how we phrased it um, on our website. We desire to be a community of people who can come just as we are and who are not afraid to be ourselves and let ourselves be known. Uh, We believe that when people see followers of Jesus who are real and authentic, they will see a Jesus who is real and authentic We think that this happens by embracing curiosity about ourselves, others, and God, and through the courage to ask big questions. 
Authentic faith includes authentic doubts, which are welcome rather than feared. End of sentence. Uh, we, what stands out to me in this statement about authenticity is something that we experience. It's, it's something that happens when we come as we are, not trying to be something else. Um, but I do want to say that authenticity is not a hall pass to be a jerk or to do bad stuff and just be like, hey, I'm being authentic. You can't do anything about that. Um, I think that's a problem. If you're, if you're authentically a b-hole, uh, that's not okay. Um, Authenticity, I'm allowed to say that, I asked Molly. <laughs> Authenticity is less about being unfiltered and unrefined than it is about being curious and courageous and asking questions, naming experiences, and being honest. Um, and so for me, maybe the best example of that, if we're going to look at something from the story of God and, and try to find out what authentic faith looks like, for me, there's no better story than from the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Job is ancient wisdom literature. Uh, it's, it's a bookended story. Um, it has uh, a lot of information about a guy named Job, things that he did. Um, and in the middle of all this is really a philosophical debate about what God is up to in the world. What happens when we experience injustice? What happens when we experience pain for no reason? Um, and, and really it all centers on this divine wager that's made between God and a being named the Satan. And we're going to talk more about that person in just a second. But at its heart, this is a book about what authentic faith looks like. So this is how the story is framed. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil he had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So this story opens up introducing us to this person, Job, who is blameless and upright. This is a way of saying that he was almost morally perfect uh, Job is described by his many children and his many things, all numerals of 10, which in the ancient world would have shown you how completely wealthy and blessed he was um, in terms of ancient uh, estimations. So the idea that he was the greatest uh, wasn't just that he was the best, he was the most moral person. It, it also probably means that he was the richest. So uh, this is what happens. This is how we're introduced to this person, Job. And this description of Job is what prompts a debate in heaven, which is what we find out next. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, which is just what the narrator told us. Uh, and so this scene is taking place up in heaven. It's taking place in a divine council room where Yahweh, the God of Israel, is holding court with all of the he heavenly beings, just checking in. And uh, one of these beings is this Satan character. 
And uh, just a quick note about who this character is or maybe isn't. We often think of Satan or the Satan as this red devil with a pitchfork and all that kind of stuff. That's not really what we're supposed to think of when we hear this character. If we were ancient Israelites, we would think of something completely different. Uh, Because in in Hebrew, this word satan uh, is really how you say it. And uh, it means accuser, adversary. Um, And this character, the, the Satan or the Satan, is really someone who is not opposed to Yahweh, at least at this part in the story. This is a character that works for Yahweh. The job of this Satan character is to go out and roam the earth looking for people who are living in opposition to God, looking for cases to uh, try in the divine court of law against humans. And so when God asks the Satan character where he's been, he said, I've been out looking for cases. I've been roaming the earth. And then God asks him if he has considered Job. Really, he's saying, have you thought about bringing any cases against Job because he doesn't seem to have any? And this, this makes the Satan character upset because the Satan character's job is to find these things and apparently he can't when it comes to Job. So really, the Satan character is like a divine prosecuting eternity for the divine. He's like Saul Goodman uh, in maybe more ways than uh, <laughs> one. But uh, the Satan is like a lawyer looking for these cases, and God is asking the Satan character if he has considered Job's case. And uh, this makes the Satan character very mad because this is what he says. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan's response to what Yahweh says about Job and Job's righteousness is that everything that Job does in faith, all of Job's goodness, is tied to Job's wealth and his blessings from God. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan asks, literally saying, Job does none of this good stuff for free. There's a payoff. There's this transaction that you have with him And he only worships you because you give him stuff. This is all about the goodies that are attached to faith. It's not really about being nice. And so if there was ever a text that disproved the idea of health, wealth, and prosperity (laughs) when it relates to God and the gospel, like this would be the one to go to. But, But Satan is asking this question of God. Do people, can people actually serve you for any other reason than the stuff that you can provide them? Uh, a, a scholar by the name of Gustavo Gutierrez says that the story of Job is really about this. Can human beings have a disinterested faith in God? That is, can they believe in God without looking for rewards and fearing punishments? Even more specifically, are human beings capable in the midst of unjust suffering of continuing to assert their faith in God and speak of God without expecting a return. Satan, and with him all those who have a barter conception of religion, trading one thing for another, deny that this is a possibility. 
But the author of Job, on the contrary, believes it to be possible, although he undoubtedly knew the difficulty that human suffering, one's own and that of others, raises against authentic faith in God. Gutierrez is saying here that that this wager about what authentic faith looks like in the book of Job is, is this asking about whether we just do the stuff that we do whether we even have faith, because we're either afraid of getting punished or because we're looking for some kind of payoff in the end. The book of Job asks the question, can faith be for its own sake? Can can it endure suffering and pain and lack if we never see a trade-off that works for us? I I love this line that he says, that, that it's disinterested faith. That's the authentic faith. And so from here in the story of Job, I'll summarize a little bit. Uh, Satan receives permission from God to take away all of Job's stuff. All of Job's children are killed. All of his properties are lost. And then the narrator tells us, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, these signs of grief and mourning, And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job laments. Job goes through these expressions of grief. He mourns. He shaves his head. He is authentic about the things that he's experiencing. He's not trying to explain them away to try to justify God. He's not railing against God, blaming God. He he, he doesn't seem to think that he's been wronged by God because bad things have happened. He he doesn't seem to have that transactional cause-effect relationship with God. But the Satan doubles down after this uh, because Job doesn't do what he thought. He he tells God, well, it's actually because of his health. It's because of his physical abilities. And so then he is given permission to take away Job's health. And the only thing that he can't do is kill him. Um, And so the Satan does all this and he's actually trying to create these cases now. He's, he's actually trying to generate a case for Job to be indicted on these circumstances that the Satan is creating. And so we're told that the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. So now Job truly has nothing. He has no children, he has no wealth, he has no health, he has none of the ancient markers of the ancient world of someone who is blessed by God. And he's scraping himself with pieces of broken pottery to try to find some relief from the physical anguish that he's in. And that's when his friends show up. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The text says, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, heard about all of the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their houses and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. 
and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So, <laughs> that's perfect timing. <laughs> uh, these three friends hear of the tragedy of their friend. They come to console. They weep over him. They mourn with him. They sit with him in silence for a week without saying anything. And here would be an excellent time to end the book. It would be so nice if the book stopped right here. This is the appropriate response, to sit in silence and in mourning with a friend who's lost everything. Unfortunately, there are about 40 more chapters after this because the friends do what we all do sometimes, which is they decide that talking will help things. So what happens next is about 30 30 so chapters of Job's friends picking these theological debates with him telling him that his suffering is not for nothing, that there's a purpose for it. He must have sinned in some unknown way because God wouldn't just let these bad things happen. Uh, Maybe in the end, it will all work out. You'll, You'll be vindicated, Job. Don't worry about these present sufferings. Eliphaz, one of his friends, says, Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? And what a stupid question. But this is what this friend thinks. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. Feel better soon. Bildad responds, Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. That just doesn't make any sense, Job. There must be something here. Zophar replies, Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Not only do these friends try to justify God before their friend who is in all this pain, they're actually blaming the victim. It's your fault for all of this, Job. I mean, we we couldn't think of any examples where God has done bad things to good people. Job's friends have this theology that they get from certain books in the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. It's this theology called a theology of retribution. Basically, it means that when bad things happen, they happen to bad people, and when good things happen, they happen to good people, and God's in charge of all of that. And it really shows up in a book like Deuteronomy. And this is kind of the the best example of, of what these theological points are about. It says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And so then the rest of that half a chapter or so goes on to list all the kinds of blessings that you might experience. Rain in your seasons, food, children, all of these wonderful things. And then a few verses later, it says this. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commandments and decrees I am giving to you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And so then the rest of the chapter lists all these different kinds of curses that someone might experience. 
uh, like leprosy or like wars or plagues, all of these different things. And so this theology is pretty dominant at certain points in the Bible. Good people who follow God's covenant get blessings. Bad people get punished. That's just how it works. Except that it only works a lot of the times, not all the time. But Job's friends are so hooked on this theology that that the world has to fit into this model that they can't overlook their theology to see their friend's situation. Job's Theobro friends make a classic mistake in that they value their theology over their friend's experience of suffering. Theology does not fix, at least as far as I am aware, genocides that have happened. It doesn't make miscarriages easier. It doesn't cure diseases, and it can't heal depression. Theology is theology. And what really bothers Job's friends in this book is that Job's authentic faith and questioning of his experience pushes the edges of their theology out. If anyone should have had the this-for-that relationship of faith, it should have been Job, because he started with everything. He had success, he had health, he had wealth. He should have seen it as a gift from God, and if he experienced otherwise, should have said, well, it must be because I've done something wrong, or because God is unjust. But Job doesn't go either way. He just says, this is my experience, and it doesn't seem right. Job replies to his friends. He says, I have heard many things like these before. (laughs) You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Yet if I speak... My pain is not relieved, and if I refrain, it does not go away. Gustavo Gutierrez says about this uh, passage, Job's words are a criticism of every theology that lacks human compassion and contact with reality. The one-directional movement from theological principles to life really goes nowhere. Instead of speaking ill of the God in whom he believes, Job challenges the foundations of the prevailing theology. Job is convinced that the theological method of his friends leads nowhere but to contempt for human beings and thus to a distorted understanding of God. This back and forth between Job and his friends goes on and on and on, and eventually God enters the conversation at the end of the book. But there are no answers given in that section. When God shows up, there's just more questions. In fact, for chapter after chapter, the only thing that God does in a conversation with Job is pelt him with questions. And at the end of the book, we are no closer to understanding injustice in the world. Job is never told of the heavenly scene that took place before he lost everything, that it was just this bet between God and Satan to see if there was real faith out there. There's no resolution. And inexplicably, after all of this happens, 
Job is completely restored. He gets everything back times two. And so whether this is some kind of payoff for putting Job through the ringer that God does or, or some kind of perverse reward for his suffering, no one really knows the answer. But the point of the book of Job doesn't seem to be interested in answering those questions. The point of the book seems to be trying to find a faith that isn't about reward or punishment, about a faith that can honestly say, this theology that I was told sucks when I go through this. It doesn't work. It's a faith that can name exactly, precisely how hard life can be and is in this moment. It's a faith that can look life and death squarely in the face and not try to escape the question or sugarcoat it. The point of the book of Job is about an authentically disinterested faith and what that would look like. Because Job does show us what that authentic faith looks like. But it's not because Job is trying to be authentic. It's not like Job was like, well, in this suffering, how can I really be authentic? He's just being honest about how things are going, how how his expectations have not been measured up to. He's being honest when the theology that he was taught does not equate to his experience. And so the point of this book would seem to be that Job is right and his friends who have their rigid Deuteronomy-based theology of good equals good and bad equals bad, they're wrong, right? They're just wrong. Except for the fact that that also is a part of the Bible and we all have to start somewhere, right? Uh, The idea that good behavior gets rewarded and bad behavior gets punished is kind of a helpful starting point for, I don't know, like most humans. It's very likely at some point that people like Job, maybe Job himself, held that very basic theology until his experience undermined it and he had to figure out a way to broaden it. We, We can't just be our authentic selves while forgetting about things like basic foundations, role models, things like that. Uh, I was recently listening this week to Adam Grant's Rethinking podcast, and he had Steve Martin on for SNL, Only Murders in the Building, I don't know, The Jerk, you know, trying to cover a broader range here. Uh, <laughs> he was talking about this authenticity, Steve Martin was. And what surprised me uh, was that both Steve Martin and Adam Grant who are, I think, pretty authentic, creative people, both said that the worst kind of advice anyone could give someone is to be your authentic self. Like, that's a terrible goal to aim for. Uh, Adam Grant backed it up with research. He said in the late 90s uh, that there was actually a study that was done um, where people were motivated by their own best performances And the people who were given that sort of bar to shoot for always underperformed the people who had role models. (laughs) Trying to be your best self is never the best. It's always better to try to imitate someone, they said, to start. Uh, This study was done by uh, Lockwood and Kunda, and they said, it appears, this is like their conclusion, it appears that increasing the accessibility of one's best selves undercuts inspiration because it constrains the positivity of the future selves one may imagine, 
and prevents one from generating the more spectacular future selves that the role model normally inspires. We all need someone to look up to. We all need a template that has to be broken first in order to be authentic. Like if you wanna be your best, most authentic self, you have to start by copying someone else. You have to start with a role model. And so that would mean that authentic faith in community and individually is both having the courage to question and be honest like Job, and it is also having the humility to try to model your faith off of someone else's. Uh, bad faith, uh, if, you, if you like philosophy, Jean-Paul Sartre, postmodernist says, bad faith is to pretend like you don't actually have a choice. It's to, to use your freedom to make choices. Choices to doubt and be real and make observations about life or choices to pick who you want to model your life after and pretend that you don't have a choice at all, that you're just locked into this very rigid, small theology. Authentic faith, though, is really simply about making a choice for yourself and doing that in a community where a bunch of people are doing that as well and perhaps definitely doing that differently from the way that you do that. Authentic faith can recite a creed or a liturgy, not because it believes every single word, but because it knows that faith is about more than words and beliefs, and because it knows that someone out here can say those things and mean it. Authentic faith can fearlessly talk about its own experiences without worrying or getting a theological anxiety attack from the gatekeepers in the community. Authentic faith can boldly choose who to follow or to shape itself within, knowing that faith isn't perfect in that person either, and that if we find our own voices, we find them by copying, by imitating first, and then our own authentic voice emerges from the cracks. And so at Crossings, we value authenticity, not as an end to itself, and not as a list of rules that have to be followed in order to definitely be authentic. We value authenticity whenever someone shows up in their pain, to, to their disappointment, to the way their life has turned out. We value authenticity whenever someone decides to try a faith that someone else seems to do better. Not because they're selling out, but because they're trying and because that faith trusts that the true, authentic faith will win out. And so my hope for all of us is that we experience that kind of authenticity for ourselves alongside each other. Would you pray with me? God, may we seek you honestly. May we speak courageously. May we find a faith that isn't interested in rewards or afraid of punishment. Grant us grace where our experiences fail to measure up. Keep us from the temptation of valuing our theories about you more than the people right in front of us. May we feel free to come as we are, but may we also feel emboldened to leave changed. Amen. Oh,